Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, it's a little bit early, but we are going to get started simply because we have a lot that we're going to try and cover today. Um, I'm going to try and get us back on schedule. Um, so we are off schedule because of the, the, the week that we missed. Um, so what we're going to do, um, and I w- I've got the recording going just so this is on the recording. What we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 55 today, and we're going to look at the works of God, and then we will look at worship of God, and then we will take one whole class and just sort of dis- do our discussion around those two. So the next two weeks going to be a little bit off of uh, our normal schedule, uh, just so you know. So um, it is spring break, so we might be a little bit lean today, or beginning of spring break, I guess I should say. Um, And I'm guessing that's just in southwest Missouri. I don't know what Kansas's schedule is. Does anybody know? They're done. They're done. Okay. I was thinking because I saw a friend of mine was uh, traveling last week. Um, so uh, we may be a little bit lean, uh, but hopefully um, this will be beneficial for you. Uh, we have an incredibly large task today. So what we want to try and, and uh, end with and comprehend is an overall view of the reality of Scripture, what God is doing as well as an overall view of the book of Isaiah. Uh, So hopefully you have been reading a chapter a day for five days, and now you're somewhere between chapters 40 and 50. Um, I've missed some time in there, so I I think uh, I I did some reading last night just to get caught up, and I think I'm through chapter 53. Uh, But anyways, hopefully you're somewhere in there, and if you're not, it's not that big of a deal. Remember, that was just... Uh, extra credit, and God's going to shine favorably upon you. (laughs) Kidding. Uh, uh, That was just more or less for your benefit, but hopefully some of that will get tied together. Because I know um, Randy Regeer asked me at one time, he said, when are you going to talk about the book of Isaiah? You know, I have so many questions, and hopefully what we talk about today will give an outline, a little bit of structure. That's all we're going to do. We're not going to look specifically at the book. Um, but also, the, the other thing is just this general overview of the entirety of uh, God's economy and what he's doing is the other thing we're trying to do today. And I'm going to give you a biblical model. Uh, it, you know, it's a real pretty uh, diagram that I made in, in Publisher, so you can actually read it, because if I did it by hand, you'd be like, what in the world does that say? Uh, so you will get a copy of that next week. If you want to try and sketch it out, you're more than welcome to. I will be drawing some stuff on the board, but don't feel like you have to. So just so you're aware of that. That being said, uh, let's begin by asking God's help, shall we? Because our task is so large. Father, we come before you, um, first of all, humbled. Uh, we are uh, amazed that you have loved us. We are amazed that you are aware of us, that you are mindful of us. God, that you have in any way uh, put your thoughts towards us because of your holiness, because of your transcendency. God, your sovereignty that 
uh, rules us, we are, uh, we are just grateful and humbled that you have loved us. Father, I pray that as we ponder your greatness, that we will also understand the greatness of the invitation that you give to us, that you have called us into a loving relationship with you, that we can know you, we can be known by you, and God, we can ultimately spend our eternity in, in the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, without sin, without this, this thing that constantly draws us, our attention away. God, we are truly grateful for that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Teach us now through your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts, open our minds, so that we may know you better and, and worship you in a truer way, serve you in a way uh, that is more in line with what you would have. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so just a real quick summary. Um, we have spent the first... Yes? No, there are no handout sheets today. Just because last week, you know, we did the uh, uh, application thing. So, yep. Um, so we have looked at three aspects that are sort of these, um, well, one is the overall defining characteristic of God's nature. God's characteristics, if you put them all together into one sort of summation, one summary, we call that, does anybody remember, it's the first one we looked at, Isaiah 6? What? Holiness of God. Yes, and we, 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 I tried to give you an adjective to go with that, the traumatic holiness of God. Remember how Isaiah was undone, and when he was confronted with the holiness of God, there was this sense in which he said, woe is me, I'm, I'm cursed. There was a recognition that because of the character and, and the attributes of God, he didn't measure up. Uh, so we looked at that, and then we uh, spent some time looking at the transcendence of God and his sovereignty. Um, and I wanted to share with you just one quote about the sovereignty of God. This is one of my favorite quotes. So if I say the name uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, does anybody know? Anybody heard that name before? Okay. He was referred to as the Prince of Preachers, uh, was a very eloquent uh, speaker. He had a, uh, a church in London, if I remember right, and in which he would preach literally to tens of thousands of people every week. Seven services he would preach, no microphones, no video, none of that, and he would still reach probably on average 20,000 people each week. Um, but he had this saying about the sovereignty of God, and he said this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which we lay our head in times of trouble. It is that place that we can rest simply because we know that God is on the throne. He is in control. And I love that quote because I think it truly helps us to understand uh, the ultimate nature of God. So first thing I want to start with, this is kind of my funky drawing of a man. We, uh, we put this up here last week and we we're talking about, you know, we have a man and here we have his brain. Uh, this guy doesn't have a very big brain, apparently. And we have his heart, and then we have all the rest of him. Uh, and we talked about how, how affected is that person by sin, and we talked about it's affecting his entire being. 
Today, we want to talk about that same uh, person, but I want to ask you a, a opening question here. Why is man around? What is, is the purpose of man? Uh, I might say, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Okay. Any other thoughts? Okay, so we are purified to be offered to Christ. We are to glorify God. To be in companionship. To be in companionship, uh, to live in community with one another as well as with God. Any other thoughts? I want to share with you, um, and I think there are, you know, this is one of those issues you have to be careful. It's really easy to just definitively say, well, this is, you know, here's what this verse says. You have to take them all in their sum total. So this is just one declarative verse about this, okay? So this is from Psalm chapter 8, and I'm going to read, uh, you will recognize this. I'm going to read verses uh, 3 through 5 here. It says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? Have you ever felt that way? You know, you just awestruck by the awesomeness of some place and you're like god why do you even pay attention to us uh and and that's basically what the psalmist is saying here but your version probably says what is man that you are mindful of him uh that you remember him a son of man that you look after him verse five you made him little less than god and crowned him with glory and honor notice that you crowned him with glory and honor uh, that's something that oftentimes I think we don't think about in the terms of mankind. But in reality, we were created to display the glory of God by reflection. It's kind of like the moon. The moon doesn't produce its own light, right? It, it reflects the light of the sun. And we are very much the same. But what is interesting is in that reflecting process, we understand what exaltation is, don't we? Because we understand a God who is exalted. And in reality, this is what led Lucifer or Satan to his downfall. He observed the glory of God. He was created. uh, Remember, it says we were made a little lower than the angels. And so he was created just like us to reflect the glory of God. And he saw the glory of God all the time. But what did he want? He wanted that glory for himself. And so one of the the issues that mankind has is he has this innate desire for exaltation. uh, And it causes a variety of problems. It's this innate desire to to be seen, to be recognized, to have significance, to have purpose. And these things drive us. Now, let me prove this to you uh, from a biblical standpoint. If you have ever read in the book of Ephesians... Uh, about relationships and and what it is that we are supposed to do. I'm looking around the room. I think we have all husbands and wives in here except for Mike. Uh, What is it that we are supposed to do? Husbands, do what to your wives? 
Love your wives. Wives, do what to your husbands? Respect them. Unconditionally. Obey, right? <laughs> I tried to get that in my vows, and Kathy put her foot down. She said no. So, uh, so this idea of love and respect, it is this mutual lifting up. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. If there is anything that you have from being united with Christ, have this attitude, attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Consider one another what? More important than yourselves. Lift others up. And so there is this desire within us to be lifted up. And in reality, that's what God is doing. That's what Psalm 8 is saying is that he is lifting us up, even though we are just dirt. We're just some dirt that he smashed together and breathed life into. But he is lifting us up to share in his glory. That is what his ultimate plan is. Think about the book of Revelation. You get to the end. And to me, one of the best statements that every time I read it gives me goosebumps because I hear this sense of finality. But when the author says, and now the dwelling place of God is with man. Now it's, it's the, the thing that he's been working towards the entire time to, to bring these two together has happened. And so in mankind, we were created to reflect his glory and, and the reflecting of God's glory creates within us this desire to be glorified or to be lifted up. And you say, well, wait a minute, that sounds contradictory. It is. But what is it that Jesus says about being glorified and lifted up? Who is the one that will be glorified or lifted up? Is it the one who seeks it? The first shall be last. The last shall be first. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is the entirety of the message of Scripture of what is happening. And then it's so interesting to me in the book of Isaiah, uh, we've talked about this before. It very much models the, uh, the entirety of the, uh, of the Bible. Uh, there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah and there are 66 books in the uh, Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with the coming uh, problem of sin and guilt that the nation of Israel is dealing with. And there is, you know, Jeremiah focuses on the coming captivity, uh, the 70 years that they are going to spend in captivity. And if you go to the book of Daniel, then that's, you know, you get to, uh, what is it, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is reading and he says, I, I was thinking about years and I was thinking about the book of Jeremiah and I was realizing, hey, the time that was prophesied for us to be in captivity is coming to a close. And so because of that, uh, Daniel was spending time in prayer, confessing to God the sins of his people. Jeremiah does the same thing. Well, Isaiah says this is happening, but he's doing it just specifically for the nation of, of uh, Judah, the southern tribe. And then you, you get through these 39 chapters and you come to chapter 40. And does anybody remember how chapter 4, don't look at it. Does anybody remember how chapter 40 begins? If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you will know the answer to this. The second most famous part of the Messiah Handel's Messiah is in Isaiah chapter 40. It's not the hallelujah chorus. Comfort ye, comfort my people. In other words, after all of this 
um, difficulty, chapters 1 through 39, the, the curses that are coming because of the disobedience, God says, bring comfort. Now, what is the source of the comfort that is going to come for the nation Israel? In chapter 42, we're introduced to a person. Does anybody know who we're introduced to in chapter 42 of Isaiah? Okay, Jesus. He's called something different in uh, Isaiah. What? Okay, the servant. Literally, it is the slave of Jehovah or the slave of suffering. We call him the suffering servant. And so we were introduced to him in chapter 40, uh, excuse me, 42, 49, 52, 53. 53 is, is the one you're probably most familiar with. You know, he, he himself bore our iniquities. Uh, he was esteemed and we esteemed him not. That, the the uh, prophecy of the coming Messiah, which in reality is probably not a prophecy of the coming Messiah, it's a pr- prophecy of the Messiah that has come. If you notice the verb tenses, they're all in the past tense. It is, it is the prophecy that depicts when Jesus comes back, they're going to look upon him and they're going to realize, we missed it. He was the Messiah. We missed him. And so you get through chapter 54, and all of a sudden there is sort of a switch much like you have in the New Testament, you walk through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and you get uh, this, this presentation of the gospel, and then you get to the book of Romans. It is the great invitation to this gospel that God has brought about. And that's what you have in Isaiah 55, which is where we find ourselves today. This great, as a matter of fact, theologians have called this chapter for years the grand invitation. Because in reality, it pictures not only uh, what God is offering to the nation Israel, but what God is offering to everyone. It becomes in itself a gospel for the whole world. One of my favorite titles for the book of Isaiah is the fifth gospel. Because in reality, it pictures for us in the Old Testament what God was trying to do. Now, I challenge you to think about where, kind of where we are in the gospel series and the turmoil that exists between the religious leaders and Jesus. Why was Jesus so frustrated with them? Because they had all this information that we are reading about. They had all that information and yet they hadn't caught it. And, and uh, I believe this is today's sermon. He says, uh, I missed Thursday night, so if, we're, if this isn't where we are, Sorry. But he says to them, you know, you, you do all these things and yet you, you bind people up to where you, you keep them from entering the kingdom. You yourselves don't go in, but you're keeping other people from going in. And so that was the source of his anger and frustration with the nation Israel is that they were keeping not only their people from coming in, but also others. And so obviously when Jesus is eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and things like that. He's trying to present the gospel to those individuals. So, does that make sense? Everybody got where we are? Because now we're going to sort of dive in to chapter 55 with that as the backdrop, with that as the context that we're going to talk about. And I want to walk through this model that applies 
and then some concepts that sort of flesh out what we've been talking about. So I want to make sure everybody is on the same page, understand what I just said. Uh, either that or you're like, I don't care. It's St. Patrick's Day. Uh, just don't pinch me or something. I don't know. <laughs> this wasn't intentional. Kathy calls this my bowling shirt. She says it looks like a, a shirt that, like, you know, I don't know, Al Bundy would wear bowling or something. So. <clears throat> yeah, let you guys in on a little Smith family humor. So. Okay, any, any questions, comments? Does that make sense? Wheels turning. Okay, with that said, let's jump into uh, Isaiah chapter 55. Um, Isaiah chapter 55 begins with Isaiah saying, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Um, so we're introduced to this word in uh, Isaiah, the word thirst. So I'm going to ask you a question here. And uh, first of all, part of this is, you know, if, if you think about it, uh, if you remember, I say part of our challenge or my challenge when I teach is to help you think about how you go through and interpret the Bible yourself, as well as to teach you what the material that we're talking about. So this is going to be a little bit of both. So this word thirst is the author using this word thirst in a literal sense? That's the first question I have. Okay, so he's using it in a metaphorical way. Oftentimes we will find, particularly in prophecy, places where the author will use things like signs, like symbols, like imagery like this in a uh, in a metaphorical way and so we're not meant to take it literally you know he's not like uh, I know you're thirsty remember the woman at the well and Jesus is talking about I'll give you this water again that's an example of using language metaphorically even though it's in line with how it should be used so we need to understand what it is that the author is talking about so we talked earlier about mankind's desire for elevation, for glorification. In this idea of thirst, what is it that the author is communicating in regards to that idea of glorification or exaltation? Let, let, me, let me back up. What is thirst? If you're in the desert and you're thirsty, what is happening? Okay, you're dehydrated. So thirst is a... Lack of water, but it is in reality your recognition of the fact that you need water, right? So when the author is using this, this idea of thirst, it's not the need that he's talking about. It is the recognition. When you're hungry, it's not, you know, your stomach's grumbling and you're, you're like, hmm, I, I should eat a cheeseburger or salad <laughs> if you look at me. Uh, it, it, what in reality is happening is your body, you know, your brain is saying to your stomach, hey, put something in here. And, and so it's just your recognition of the need that you have. And that is exactly what the author of, of Isaiah is saying. There is a recognition that we have something. And so here's the invitation to those that have a recognition of that. 
Now, what is the recognition of? What's that? Okay, it is a recognition of this internal need that we have to have something. We haven't gotten to that yet, but to have something. There, there is another concept, I think, that, is, that we're being introduced to here. And as you think about thirst, you know, you have this... Um, well, first of all, let me say it this way. Have you ever had a time when you were so thirsty that all you could think about was a drink of water? What, what was going on when that happened? I mean, what were you doing? Literally, just you were what? Searching for it. You were searching for water. Okay, Jack. Uh, I am some young boys, which I was young then. We were going to explore a creek, hmm. and we ended up, and it was further than we thought. And when we started back there, by we were griping, we didn't have any water. You wanted to go back to the creek and get some water, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there, there was a time, I was thinking about this this week. Um, I grew up working around a farm and we were putting up hay. Actually, I believe we were putting up straw this particular summer, which comes a little bit later than putting up hay in Ohio. And it was hot. And I forgot my water jug at the farm. And so all day long, putting up straw. And I would see people drink water and it was like, oh, just to have one drop. Uh, and finally, I got so desperate. There was a little creek that ran by uh, this field that we were baling the straw in. I went over and I reached down and I'm, you know, lapping up water, thinking, boy, this is good. As I'm walking out, the way that I came in, you had to go through some brush. I thought, I'm going to go a different way. So I walked up the stream and, of course, found something in the stream that I wish I hadn't seen, especially since I just drank that water. Uh, but I remember that sensation, that feeling of, I am, I'm going to die of thirst. Uh, um, you know, and it was, I didn't want water. I didn't want Mountain Dew. I didn't want coffee. I didn't want tea. I wanted water. And basically that is that desperation that the author is talking about here. Come, you who are thirsty. Now, I think the first thing that we have to understand is that in this need, there is a recognition of two different uh, ideas, patterns, ways of thinking. Um, and we have talked, if you have been in my class, we have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan, all of those things. But I wanted to put different names to these things. And so I'm going to use the uh, these terms, the sacred and the secular. You see, I think as human beings... We look at the world around us and we really only see one of two things. Now, let me illustrate this. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says to him, uh, he's talking to him, you know, you're a great teacher, yada, yada, yada. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And he says, you cannot see, literally, you cannot perceive the kingdom of God without being born again. This is what Jesus is saying. As a natural human being, you can only see the secular. You cannot perceive that there is this metaphysical reality, which is the kingdom of God. 
I mean, that is in reality. If you read all the parables, that's what Jesus is driving at. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. He's trying to get them to understand. You're not going to see a king sitting on a throne over in a castle over a dominion. It is a uh, metaphysical kingdom that I am reigning over because I'm reigning in the hearts. When Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he's saying. Okay. And so the first thing, the first need that has to be recognized is this difference between the sacred and the secular. Now, how, how do we do that? How does that happen? What's that? We have to discipline ourselves because when we live in the world, that's the secular side. When we accept Christ and we have the Holy Spirit within us, that's the sacred side. Mm-hmm. Secular is always going to have that fight that's internal. We have to discipline ourselves to understand the sacred side. Okay, so discipline. <clears throat> What'd you say? Well, it happens when we accept Christ because then we have the power. Yeah, so it's in the process of regeneration as we are born again, as we come to Christ, that's when we become aware of the sacred. And you're exactly right. It is through the training of the mind that we learn to see the sacred in everyday life as opposed to the secular. These are the lies that we are offered over and over and over again. If you turn on the news, all you're going to hear is secular lies. You will never hear a sacred explanation of the world around you. The only place you're going to get that is through the scriptures. And, and basically what Isaiah is saying, if, if you feel this need, this desire, you are not going to find anything here that is going to be helpful to you. You're only going to find it here. And so he says, come, you, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water uh, and, and you without silver, come by and eat. Now we're introduced to a second concept um, and I got to think of how I want to do this. Let's do it like this. Uh, money. Now, again, we have to ask, is this being used in a literal sense? Is the author of Hebrews saying, I don't even have my wallet. Oh, I know. I have this fancy uh, phone thing and hidden behind here. I have a credit card. So is that what the author is saying? You know, if, if you have some kind of money, you can come to me and you can buy. What, how is he using this idea of money here? I think we're all in agreement. He's not using it literally. So what is it representative, representative of this, this idea of money? A need. A need? Okay. Okay. So if you have no money, come and buy. But then later he's going to say, why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? So one person has money and the other person doesn't have money. So let me do this. And then I'll come back to your question, Kathy. So now we have a secondary split. Not only do we have the split between the sacred and the, and the uh, secular, we have the split between those that have money and those that have no money. Um, Mm-hmm. You can see Jim's been reading ahead because he's he's trying to get ahead of us here. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Jim. 
we're, it's kind we're, of like God saying, come, your money's no good here. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He's saying your, your money won't, won't work for you. What he's saying is this money is being used here in the sense of ability. That you have the innate ability to come before me. Now, we're going to put everything together, okay? So I need you to open your mind. Everything we've been talking about, the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God, every single one of those things makes God unreachable to you, does it not? You can't be like that. Remember, we started our whole discussion by saying there is an otherness to God that is not like us. And it is that thing that causes us to sink to our knees and say, oh, woe is me. When we recognize that, we are saying, I got no money. I got nothing. But there are people in the world who say, oh, I've got money. As Jim was referring to, and I'm going I'm to point that out to you here, that look at verse 2. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. So in reality, we have a person um, if, I'm, if I put my, uh, my person back up here, uh, who is essentially torn between the sacred and the secular. So if he chooses uh, in his thinking to move towards the secular with money, what is he going to find? If he looks at the world around him and says, I'm going to find satisfaction in this world because I have uh, the ability to, what is he going to find? It's emptiness. Uh, I'm going to use a, a different word. Um, I forgot I got my thing backwards here. I'm going to use this word. Unfulfilled. As you look at the world around you, do you see a bunch of people who are striving after things and yet they're never satisfied? Bigger house. Newer cars. You know, they say, and, and it, it's really easy because, trust me, I do this, to, to focus here um, money in one of two ways, only physical money. You know, they have capital or spiritual capital. And I think it's the melding of these two. They are unfulfilled in the sense that they find no ultimate satisfaction towards this idea of wanting to be lifted up in life. Why in the world would anybody ever want to be president of the United States of America? That's the most thankless job in the world. But you see it right here. There are people that are so filled with themselves that they want to be the leader of the free world and so they will, they will uh, you know, they will uh, follow after that. Now, what about the person who has no money, who seeks only um, satisfaction in the secular? How does that person end up? You've seen them. What's that? On welfare. Oh, okay, on welfare. <laughs> What's spiritual welfare? Let me see if I can redeem this. That was very funny, Denny. <laughs> okay. I'm going to use a different word here. You ever see any of those people? 
You will see them in the United States, but I think generally, if you, if you raise your eyes from our culture and you look around the world, you see a whole lot of that. People in Africa who say, what in the world am I living for? I have nothing. I have no hope of the future. And so they turn to a life of idealism and all of a sudden the lies begin to come in and it says, well, if you go kill those 25 people or those 40 people, you'll have all this promise in heaven, right? That's hopelessness. That is an explanation of what is happening in the world around you. Now, uh, what about the person who says they have spiritual capital and yet they pursue it in the sacred? Okay, Jim, now we got to your, your point. There is this idea of self-righteousness in that, right? And, and here's the word that I would leave you with. And, and I will tell you, I struggle with this all the time. Pride. Because every time I think, yeah, my salvation is found in God, and then I do something and think, wow, look at me. All of a sudden I fall back into thinking I have some kind of spiritual capital. And I end up being very haughty. And I would tell you that we end up focusing in, especially American Christianity, where we focus in on the visible, tangible things. You know, we we think that religiosity is tied up in the expression of the things that we do. Now, just keep that thought in mind. The expression of the things that we do. What is it that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for? You stand on a street corner and you pray out loud so that everybody will see you. You give in such a way so that everybody will see you. So all of those things, right? Now come back over here. We worry about the physical manifestation of our services. Are the you know, music right? Are the lights right? Are all these things. We, we focus on these things rather than those hidden things. As Jesus said, you should have focused on the weightier issues of the law like justice and mercy. Not whether or not you know the tithe was right and all the, and so oftentimes we tend to fall into this. Even though we are pursuing the sacred, we are doing it in our own strength, with our own spiritual capital, trying to demonstrate that hey, we're worthy. And then we use it against other people. Well, at least we're not like the church around the corner, Jim. C.S. Lewis, in the chapter book Christianity, where he talks about pride, he says it's the greatest sin. If we use it as you're talking, in a comparison sense, I am better than. Okay, we take that side. That's the sin of pride. The holiness of pride is the joy that it can give. You know, we're in a relationship. We're taking joy in our presence with God. Mm-hmm. We're not comparing ourselves. Mm-hmm. But in that joy, there's a healthy pride. Mm-hmm. And that's what he mm-hmm. writes about. Um, if I remember right, then isn't that in that same section where he talks about? Paul's boasting, and when Paul boasted in his weaknesses, that's the kind of, he boasted in those things that actually debased him and allowed God to lift him up. If I, I mean, that was 25 years ago. Okay, okay. That was 25 years ago, and I had to read that book, so I didn't choose to. Okay, so now we have the person has no spiritual capital, and yet they pursue the secular. What do we find there? 
I'm sorry, yes, sacred. Okay, peace, joy. You can fill this with any number of words. I'm going to use the word grace. You see, that is where when we acknowledge our need, our need of that which we cannot fill, and we come with open hands, with hands that hold nothing, we find grace, we find peace, we find joy, we find contentment. Now, let me see if we can make sense of this as we go through uh, the rest of the chapter. Come everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you. What does that sound like? God says, I'm going to make a permanent covenant with you. Uh, That sounds very much to me like an everlasting covenant, a covenant that has no end. And we call that faith, grace, right? Redemption. On the basis of the faithful kindness of David, since I have made him a witness to the peoples and leader and commander for the peoples, so you will summon a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you will run to the Lord. Galatians, uh, excuse me, Galatians, Ephesians chapter two says you were Gentiles excluded from the promises of Israel, but now you have been brought near in the blood of Jesus so that there is no Jew No Greek in the family of God. For the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, has glorified you. He has lifted you up. You see, that was the thing that Israel couldn't understand is, God, you made this covenant with us. You said we were going to be a great people. You said all these things. And now here we are in captivity. Here we are uh, being sent into a place you know, where somebody is, is our boss who isn't you. He isn't our king. He is somebody else. He's a foreigner. Why are we being oppressed? And God says, I did that for a reason. I did that so I could bring you something that was everlasting I did that so that I could bring you something that would bring you the ultimate peace that would meet your need, not just what you wanted. And in that, he has glorified you. So what was that thing? Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his, his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. First of all, uh, I want you to notice that there is a time factor here. Seek the Lord while he may be found. See, there is a point in time when God, you know, we, we, uh, there is a statement that people say that really gets, there's probably a bunch that people say that gets my goat if I'm honest. But one is when people talk about the infinite mercy of God or the unconditional love of God. God's mercy is not infinite. It will run out. And justice will step in. He will condemn people who have rejected him. As a matter of fact, that's probably not a very accurate statement. He will allow the condemnation that exists 
to take over. If you read John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Keep reading it. It says, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world was already condemned. And then we talk about the unconditional love of God. That's not true. God requires faith. He requires belief. He requires humility. And so here, the author is saying, you have to come while he is, can be found. You have to turn to him. And again, notice he's speaking specifically to Israel here, but notice the greater context, how it fits in perfectly with the gospel. And what is it that he will do? He will have compassion on him, and to our God, he will freely forgive. Now, uh, some of the most misquoted verses come in uh, chapter eight, verse uh, chapter. Excuse me, fifty chapter fifty-five, verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Oftentimes, we use that just in the general sense. God's ideas are up here, and ours are down here. That's not at all what He's talking about. He's talking about bringing forgiveness. What was the thing, one of the things that the Pharisees often came to Jesus and said, do you really have the authority to do that? It was to forgive sins, wasn't it? You see, they couldn't believe that he was God. That's number one. Number two, that if he was God, why was he in flesh? Because God is spirit. God is one. God is holy. God is eternal. And number three, How in the world can you, a mere man, have the authority to forgive sins? And so here, what what God is saying is, the fact that you cannot believe that I would actually forgive sins is, is just incomprehensible to you. And we see that played out in the Gospels. Incredible. And, and so it was even in this time. The Israelites had a hard time believing that God could somehow forgive Babylon, that they could somehow forgive the Medes and the Persians or the Romans or the Greeks, that God would justify those who weren't in their camp, uncircumcised, not under the law, that God would bring grace to those people. How in the world would he do that? And here he's given us the answer because his ways are way above our ways. He's not petty and petulant like we are. Uh, Verse 10, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. God says, my, my word, what I speak, what I decree is just like the rains and the snows. It accomplishes what it's supposed to. And in this sense, so God's, uh, um, so God's words are going to accomplish that. And then you begin to see, uh, think about Romans 8 here and how creation strains under the weight of, of sin and guilt. And it's crying out for its redemption. You know, remember that, that passage? As I read this, think about that in your mind. Verse 12, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up and instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. And this will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. God is going to renew creation. 
Because creation has been subjected to frustration just like we are. And here you have that even, even that part of the gospel shared. That creation is going to be redeemed even though we have caused it. So what you have here, I think, is a model. We're not quite done with this, but a model to help you understand, first of all, the entirety of the book of Isaiah, what God is offering, the entirety of the book of the Bible, as you put it in the backdrop of what we talked about earlier. I, you know, I think you have to have that, that backdrop of, of uh, all of the things that we talked about earlier Um, the holiness of God, some of those kinds of things. Um, And so in reality, you also have a model of every single person you run across. To be able, you know, and and I'm not saying this is, you know, every person you run across is going to be hopeless or going to be unfulfilled. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, at the very core of who they are, if if you drill down, and you spend time with them, what you're going to find, if they believe that they have spiritual capital, you're going to find somebody who is unfulfilled and it's going to show itself in a variety of ways. Or you're going to find somebody who is just hopeless. Yeah, Kathy. Yeah. Um, one more thing that I want to, well, we have two more things to talk about, but one more in relation to uh, this issue here. What is um, the sacred called? At the end of Scripture, we get to a place, and the sacred is termed something, okay? Just... Um, i got to make sure I'm on that right. Uh, turn to the book of Revelation. And um, when you have the fall of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 um, and chapter 19, you have this sort of... Uh, we're not going to read anything there. I just kind of want you to be able to look at things and think through, maybe go back and look. Chapter 18 and 19, you have the fall of Babylon, is what it will say. And then in chapters 20, 21, 22, you have the new Jerusalem, you have uh, the, the kingdom and all that stuff. But there is a word um, that is used, um, and, and I guess I will just read this simply because it wouldn't make sense if I don't. This is from chapter 21, verse. Uh, I'll start reading at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who is the bride? As you look at these two 
the sacred or the secular? It's the church. So is that the sacred or the secular? So the bride is over here, right? And then in chapters 18 and 19, you have this fall of Babylon and she's referred to as the great whore or the prostitute. Who is that referring to? The secular system. I probably shouldn't write that up there. I might defile that marker. <laughs> I'd probably spell it wrong anyway. So. Um, so the reason that I wanted to point that out to you, it will help you in your understanding of biblical prophecy to understand that when we have these terminologies used, this, this great whore, this prostitute, the, the bride of Christ or that, really what we're talking about are these systems, these ideas, the, the kingdom that God is going to set up or the kingdom that Satan has set up. Okay? So that will hopefully help you as you begin to think through many of those concepts. Now, there are about four or five different things that I want to just briefly touch on and give you opportunity to respond to simply because they, they uh, sort of poke their head up, I guess maybe is the best way to say it in this. The first one is this concept of what I would call the already not yet or the now not yet. Um, in the book of Isaiah, you have Isaiah speaking specifically to the people of Judah, but yet we saw this greater context, how it applies to the gospel. And so you have this sort of twofold proclamation that this is now, or it's already, but it's not yet. And you find that in biblical prophecy over and over and over again. The book of Daniel. Uh, I don't want to steal Elijah's thunder, but in multiple places in the book of Daniel, you have this proclamation where it appears that, that Daniel is talking about something that is immediate right now, but it also, from history, you can look back and see it applying to something maybe four or 500 years later uh, and, and with incredible accuracy. And so it's important to remember that when Isaiah is saying many of these things, he's specifically talking about the restoration of Israel, but there's also this backdrop of the ultimate restoration of all of mankind. And only a timeless God can do that. Because he is outside of time, he can look at something as though it's right here and also have something way down the road in mind. And to me, that is a beautiful concept that, that just constantly grips my heart to think, it's amazing, God, how you do that. Does that make sense? So keep that in mind as you, as you read. And to, to put flesh on that, you know, the question you might ask yourself is, is Isaiah here talking about the physical deliverance of the nation Israel? Or is he talking about the spiritual deliverance of the nation Israel? And the answer is yes. Right? They are going to be uh, go into captivity and be released from captivity, but ultimately they are going to find spiritual restoration. And that was the thing that they really could never understand. And then the only other thing I wanted to point out is that this is where we're first, not first introduced, the, the idea is fleshed out that the kingdom will exist between Jews and Gentiles. God is going to make one people for himself. He's going to draw all men to himself uh, and it's all going to be through the slave of Jehovah, the, 
person we're introduced to. Okay, comments, questions, things that maybe you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. Use our minds, and and as I'm as you're going through this, I'm thinking, didn't as we get into the New Testament, didn't uh, Jesus want us in our minds in, in our process as as believers to take take the spiritual side and put it in all four mm -hmm. realms of, that that you have there on the board? I mean, that, that we are supposed to take our our spirituality and take it into the secular world. Mm -hmm. There should no longer be this split in our minds that it, it should be, we should be using, um, Christ should be taking precedence in all of those areas, uh, no matter um, you know, whether mm -hmm. secular or mm -hmm. secular. I think, uh, I think I understand what you're saying. So, the idea is that when we view the world this way, um, that we will be able to carry that view as we encounter people who are maybe over here. Absolutely. And I think that's the entirety of the message from, I don't remember if this was last week or two weeks ago, my days are running together, or weeks are running together. But when Jesus says all of the law is summed up in these two, love God and love others. In that sense, absolutely. However, I think there are other teachings in the New Testament that say, I want you to understand that there is an evil world system and you need to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ so that you can think rightly about that and, and not respond the way that you might want to. Because our natural bent is somebody cuts us off in traffic is to, you know, get up beside them and, you know, bump them or do something. And, and so in reality, it is the lies that feed in that say, I should be able to get mine and, and I don't care about you. You know, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid. And it is those lies that come from Satan into us and they, they interact with our, our, our spiritual depravity that say, yeah, I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to glorify myself. And so the transformation comes when we allow our mind to be transformed and we take those lies captive and we say, no, uh, true love is subjugating myself and lifting somebody else up. So in that sense, absolutely. Yeah. Just, just remember, it, it's really hard to do. I, my struggle with this money here isn't just referring to physical money. It's not just mammon. It is the idea of spiritual capital. 
that I have an innate goodness about me that when God looks upon me, He's going to uh, respond to that. You had something to say. And what's interesting, if you begin comparing this to the parable of the soils, you will find great similarity there. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus, as farmer goes out to scatter seed, and some fell on the path, uh, some grew up here. So read that parable in light of this, and you will find amazing similarity. Somebody else had their hand up. Did you have your hand up? Okay. Um, so what I would like for you to take away from this is... Um, I, I know this has been a, a heavy intellectual pursuit, but here's what I would like you to take away from this. That in the end, the magnificent and the greatness of God can be summed up in the great invitation, come if you're thirsty. But you've got to come thirsty. It's got to be that recognition of need where you will find fulfillment. And, and that should captivate our heart just as much as the transcendence of God that can hold the universe in his hands and the oceans in his hands that he would say, come. Does that make sense? That, that, that God would welcome us because he can forgive us. That is, to me, a, a truly awe-inspiring thought. That he will do. So next week, um, we will talk about worship, true worship of God, what it is that God is asking for us in worship um, in light of all these things. And then we will have a week that we will sort of have our discussion around those two con- these two concepts. And then we are really getting towards the end of our time together. If you think about Easter is, I think, the 21st of April, so we're going to try and be done by that time frame. Um, so that way I don't want to mess up your Easter plans, whatever those would be, by having to listen to me. Jeff says, thank God. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's close in prayer, shall we? Father God, we are truly in awe um, that you would welcome us into your kingdom. God, we have been vile. We have been disobedient. We have exchanged those things that we know to be true about you for a lie. We embrace the lie. We live in the lie. We love the lie. God, help us in our weakness to be undone um, by your majesty and by your holiness and to fall at your feet in worship uh, with open hands asking for your mercy. 
God, we are truly grateful that you have loved us enough to invite us. We pray that you would make us worthy uh, through the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the most powerful name that is that of Jesus Christ. Amen. One final thought. I just thought of this as I was praying. Uh, does anybody know, uh, you know, I, I thought of this because of St. Paddy's Day and traditional Irish blessings. Does anybody know the most prominent Jewish blessing that was offered to, to each other when they would see each other? When, I mean, you know, they would say shalom to one another, but as they were leaving, what would they say to one another? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. See, that's really what this is all about. That the Lord would bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. All right. Thank you all. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.